2. Like I said, we're going to be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. In part 1, we're going to be talking about objections to the resurrection of Jesus. See, many people will approach this topic and say, well, it's a myth, or did it really happen, or is that really what was going on, or does it even really matter? And what I think is really interesting is that if you go around the world and you go into all the different cultures and all the different societies and all the different religions and worldviews, I believe that the Christian worldview is the only one that says, ask those questions and try to find the answers. It's okay to have objections because we can find out the truth. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. We're going to answer a few objections. Now, first I'd like to start with this question, which is why is it important to answer objections to the resurrection of Jesus? Why is that important? Why is that important? Well, if you are a Christian, if you do believe that this is true, it's important for us as Christians to answer this because our faith depends upon this event. It hinges on this event. If Jesus Christ did not rise from the dead, what are we doing here? The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 12-19. The scripture is on the screen. I'll read it for you. If it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And then here's the key. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, which is in the way of saying those who have died, those who have died in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says it, I think, very eloquently. If we do not believe the resurrection is a fact, a historical fact, then our faith is useless. Now, if you're not a Christian, and that's okay, we're glad that you're here this morning, every single person on the face of the earth has to come to grips with the resurrection. History pivots on the resurrection, or it doesn't. Look, if you just want religion, a religious experience, I was listening to the radio this week and a man who I respect on the radio was talking about how you should shop for a religion. You know, that's great. If you want a religious experience, you can just go out and look at all the religions and say, which one kind of makes me feel good? And pick it. Or if you just want to do something good, oh, going to church is a good thing. I should maybe just go to church. Well, then just find one that kind of makes you feel good. Just define what good is and just go for it. If you just want some friends, there's all kinds of ways you can make friends. But if you want to know truth, do you want to know truth? Do you want to be able to discern that which is right from that which is wrong? 
If you want to know those things, you have to deal with the resurrection of Jesus. Did he die and then return to life? Because if he did, he's the only one. If that's true, it changes everything. And so we have to deal with this. And so as I said, this week we're going to talk about these objections. And next week we're going to talk about some proofs. Now, as I approach objections, we could come up with all different kinds of objections. And we could spend a lot of time talking about them. In fact, I'm going to go with four today. And I'm really just going to scratch the surface. And so my encouragement to you is, if, if these strike a chord with you and you want to know more, you can go more. I can help point you in directions where you could find out more about answering these objections or other ones that maybe I don't even address today. But in the interest of time, I just pick four. And so let's go. And we're going to go kind of from maybe the smaller ones to maybe bigger ones. And we'll start with the first objection. is the idea of, was there security at the tomb or not? And so here's a passage that we can read from Matthew chapter 27, verses 62 to 66. on skin on the screen, and I'll read it. The chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. And this last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. And so that's a passage. There's this idea that Christ has died and his body's gone into the tomb. And there's this concern that, hey, people are going to show up and steal the body. And so how do we know that didn't happen? How do we today know that that actually didn't happen, right? And so the objection that can be raised is, hey, people don't rise from the dead. No one, I, I can't rise from the dead. You can't rise from the dead. People don't rise from the dead. So something must have happened. The body must have been stolen. That's easy to do. Especially it was in a tomb. It wasn't buried in the ground. It was in a tomb. You just go take the body. And so that's the objection. If this is just a missing body case, where's the body? I don't know. It's missing that's all it is, then we don't really have to deal with the idea that maybe Jesus did come back to life. And so the answer is examine the security measures. As best we can, let's examine the security measures that were in place. And so I'm going to talk about those a little bit here. First off, there were physical measures. Now here's a picture of a tomb. This was not the tomb, but this is a tomb from that era near Jerusalem. And, of course, this is is very iconic, and and we're familiar with this kind of imagery, but the idea, the way this actually worked, archaeologists have uncovered this in multiple places. This isn't just, you know, a cartoon somebody drew once. It's the real thing. There's a large stone, and it would be rolled in front of the entrance. The way this worked, it was a very big stone, and it was on an incline. And so it rolled down a hill, down through a groove, and covered that hole, and then they would jam a small rock in there. So it would be very difficult to move a stone up a hill to get it out of the way. So it was a very heavy stone. And in fact, we even see in Mark chapter 16, women go, they're going to the tomb, and they say, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They didn't know how they were going to do it. It was huge, right? Looking up, they saw the stone had been rolled back, and it was very large. This wasn't just a small stone that a couple, you know, guy or two could move. It was huge. 
And so that was a physical security measure in place to keep people, generally speaking, and specifically in this situation, to keep people from taking bodies out of tombs. Second, there was extra security. In that passage that we read, it talks about the Roman guards. Now, I could have put a, put a picture up here. You know, when we see these sometimes, I always feel like in the movies, they never do justice to the Romans. They're kind of these goofy-looking guys with, like, you know, red kind of mohawk sort of things on their helmets. And I think these guys were like SEAL Team 6, right? And so that's why I put this picture up here. I was like, this is the best I could do as far as, as, far as like, the Roman guard. Like, this is, like, the hardcore guys, Right? This isn't just rent-a-cops. Like, they didn't say, let's hire some mall cops and have them stand in front of the tomb with their little segues. <laughs> this is like SEAL Team 6. You do not want to mess with these guys at all. And they're standing guard in front of the tomb. And why were they there? Well, we saw in the passage we read earlier, they came there precisely because they expected someone would try to steal the body. So they weren't just sort of hanging around and looking. No, they had a mission. Their mission was to keep people from stealing the body that was in the tomb. And as if that wasn't enough, Pilate said, okay, we're going to go put a Roman seal on this tomb and keep it shut. So that if people somehow get past our, our seal team six and get to this tomb and have enough guys, they can move the stone out of the way. When they do that, they'll break the seal. And when they break the seal, they'll have the full force of the Roman government coming down on them. Unless they forget, there's all these crosses on the hills where we've executed people in the most painful form of execution ever devised. So it's like Fort Knox. There's no, oh, we're just going to go in there, right? And so we could still say, man, how do we know the body still wasn't stolen? I saw the movie Ocean's Eleven. Those guys, you know, they broke into the casinos and stole the money. Surely someone could get in and steal Jesus' body. But there's another proof, and that proof is that you know, Judas killed himself, and then there were 11 disciples. Ten of them went on in their life to violent deaths. Because they believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. If they had gone through some elaborate scheme to, how, how am I going to, how did we do this? And, you know, we, we snuck in and, you know, replaced the video cameras. Whatever the guys did in that movie, Ocean's Eleven, right? If that was what they did, I think eventually they would have said, hey, check out how we stole the body. This was really cool. And they would not have died for a lie. And I said ten disciples went to a violent death. The eleventh was John. They tried to kill John. They boiled him in oil. And he survived. And they said fine. And they sent him off to the island of Patmos where he eventually died. So it's hard to believe that there was a problem with security because if somebody did steal the body, they beat the top security in the world. And then they died proclaiming a lie. So that's one answer to the first objection. The second objection I'm going to talk about this morning is, well, there's discrepancies in the accounts. We have four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one describes what happened, the resurrection. But they're not all the same. Well, what do I mean by that? Let's look at the passage here. First from Matthew, chapter 28. It says, there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and, going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, 
Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who is crucified. He is not there. He has risen. Just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Okay, but also, the other Gospels record it this way. Mark 16, 5. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. He said young man. He didn't say angel. Luke says two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. Two men. Well, that sounds a little different. John 20. Mary saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Clearly, these are not saying the same thing, are they? And that's the objection. Discrepancies invalidate a story. If you walk into court... And you have two witnesses, and they tell different stories. There goes the case. There's a reasonable doubt. So do discrepancies invalidate the story? Well, the answer, I think, is this, is that the differences actually are pretty minor. I'll explain what I mean. The differences indicate that the author's These four gospel authors used different witnesses to recount the story. And it's difficult for us living in the 21st century and we have news feed and and Twitter and Facebook and instant news at our fingertips. It's difficult for us to understand what was going on, but there, there weren't even newspapers then. You know, I had this, this interesting experience. When I was a graduate student, about 15 years ago, I, we needed some extra money, and so I got a job working at the school library, the University of Washington, and I got a job in the, the newspaper department. And part of my responsibility was to take this huge stack of newspapers that came from all over the state of Washington and all over the country and actually all over the world in different languages and sort through that information and sort those things out so they could be photographed and put on a microfiche and put into a catalog somewhere. It's very interesting. You know, I kept thinking I was going to see ghosts, like in the movie Ghostbusters, right? I was like down in the basement of the library. But that was my job, right? And so while I was doing that, I was trying to think, what was the most significant news event that happened while I was doing that? And I remember it was the Columbia Space Shuttle disaster. I remember when the space shuttle blew up as it was coming in to land, right? And there it was, like, the next day, the next week, just hundreds of newspapers, all with exactly the same story. And every single one of those newspapers has the same job. What is the news? And we're going to report it. Well, there were no newspapers. There were no newspapers in Jerusalem at this time. So we don't have newspapers to go on. All we have is the stories that people were able to tell. And so I would contend that if you go back to the core of what we have in the four Gospels, it's all very much the same. And we could really summarize it, I think, this way. One, there's a guy named Joseph of Arimathea, and he gets the body of Jesus. And he takes the body, and he puts it in this tomb. And then, on Sunday, people show up at the tomb, and it's empty. And the people who show up at the tomb see at least one angel. And that is a core story that is true there. Now, even secular historians will agree. People who aren't, you know, like me, biased and want to believe this, people who don't believe this, and they go, well, we look at the facts, and this core story is true. And here's an example of one, Michael Grant, 
Again, he's a skeptic, secular historian from Scotland. And he says, True, the discovery of the empty tomb is differently described by the various Gospels. But if we apply the same sort of criteria that we would apply to any other ancient literary sources, then the evidence is firm and plausible enough to necessitate the conclusion that the tomb was indeed found empty. When we apply the standard to all other history, the same standard we apply to that history, the gospel accounts are incredibly solid. And we don't have just one account, we have four accounts that point to the same information. Interestingly enough, when we go back to that idea of the the angels, and was there one angel or, or two angels? Well, Matthew and Mark describe one, But they don't say only one. They say one. There could have been two. They're just recording the fact that there's one. People will also bring up the same objection with the name and the number of the women who were there. Again, the lists that are provided are never said to be exhaustive. These guys were not doing news reporting and saying, all of these are the people who were there. They're recounting the story. None of them are ex- exclude anyone else who's shown. So, speaking of the women, that brings us to our third objection, which is these women witnesses. Okay, you got these, these women, they go to the tomb and Jesus isn't there. For example, this passage in John chapter 20, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so the objection we get from this is, hey, the testimony of friends is suspect. Mary Magdalene was one of Jesus' closest friends, one of his followers, one of his disciples. She stuck it out. She shows up. How can we trust that what she's saying is the truth? She had something to gain by saying that Jesus had risen from the dead. And I think the answer to this one is that actually... These women witnesses, their testimony lends additional credence to the story. Why? Why do I think that's the case? Well, the key fact is this, is that in the first century, in Jewish society, the role of women was incredibly different than the role of women is in our society today. And I could try to explain this to you, but I'd like to present this quote from Dr. William Lane Craig that I believe highlights this in a way that's far more eloquent than I could say it. And I'll read it to you. He said, Women were on a very low rung of the social, social ladder in first century Palestine. There are old rabbinical sayings that said, Let the words of the law be burned rather than delivered to women. And, Blessed is he whose children are male, but woe to him whose children are female. Women's testimony was regarded as so worthless that they weren't even allowed to serve as legal witnesses in a Jewish court of law. In light of this, it's absolutely remarkable that the chief witnesses to the empty tomb are these women who were friends of Jesus. Any later legendary accounts would have certainly portrayed male disciples as discovering the tomb, Peter John, for example. The fact that women are the first witnesses to the empty tomb is most plausibly explained by the reality that, like it or not, they were the discoverers of the empty tomb. This shows that the gospel writers faithfully recorded what happened, even if it was embarrassing. 
This bespeaks the historicity of this tradition rather than its legendary status. And so what he's saying there to summarize it is, if the, the resurrection of Jesus was a myth, and people had invented it later, the authors would have excluded the testimony of women because it didn't lend credence in the culture to the story. But they included it. It was embarrassing in that time, and they included it because it was the truth. So we go, okay, fine. How do we know these people you know, didn't just imagine this? They all clearly believed that they saw Jesus alive, that Jesus rose from the dead. How do we know they weren't hallucinating? How do we know they didn't just all imagine this? It's an example of one of their experiences, one of their encounters with Jesus after he'd risen from the dead. The disciples were talking about these things. Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Right? And so what's the objection here? The objection is, hey, people don't rise from the dead. They say two things in life are certain, right? Death and taxes, and you can cheat on your taxes, but you can't cheat death. Everybody dies. People don't rise from the dead. This must have been a hallucination. The answer is that Jesus' multiple appearances defy the possibility that it was just merely the imagination of the people who saw him. See, hallucinations, by definition, are not shared. Hallucinations require special circumstances, almost exclusively the use of drugs or some sort of bodily deprivation, right? So if you and I were out and we were walking through a desert and we were running out of water and we ran out of food and we started having hallucinations and I, and I thought I saw something, what would I do? I'd say to you, do you see this too? And you'd say, no, I don't see that. I see something else. I see a pink elephant, Right? It would be impossible for us to have hallucinations and see the same thing, by definition. And yet, Jesus appeared, the record shows us that Jesus appeared to multiple people at once. He didn't just appear to one person, and then to one other person, and then to one other person. No, he appeared to a group, and a group, and a group, and here's a list Jesus appeared to the women at the tomb. It records there in Matthew 28, there were multiple women and he appeared to them. In Luke 24, he walked with two disciples on the way to Emmaus. In Luke 24 and John 20, he appears to the ten apostles. In John 21, he appears to the seven apostles. In Matthew 28, he appears to eleven apostles. In Acts 1, he appears on the Mount of Olives to a lot of people. Jesus appeared in multiple settings over the course of 40 days to all kinds of people. To believe this objection 
that it was hallucinations. You have to believe all of these different people somehow all mysteriously had the exact same hallucinations at the exact same time. And frankly, if they were hallucinations, they would be refuted by the presence of a dead body. If people just thought they saw Jesus... Well, guess what? He would still be dead. And when they said, he is alive, the Jewish authorities, the Romans would have said, no, he's not. We open this tomb. Here's his body. It wasn't there. It wasn't there. And frankly, furthermore, hallucinations would not result in the clarity of early church doctrine. They'd be all over the place. If someone saw Jesus this way and someone saw him that way, it'd be all over the place. But instead we get this, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to 7, which historians have determined is a creed that dates back to within a few years of the resurrection. It says, and this is Paul speaking, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, in case you want to check that out, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. Because scholars date this creed to within years of the death of Christ, it becomes obvious to us that a clear and concise summation of belief such as this one would not result from the hallucinations of multiple people. And so what is the most rational explanation? The most rational explanation is that Jesus is alive. And so if Jesus is alive, what does that mean? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for us? And we're going to talk about this more next week. We're going to go more in depth, but I'm going to give you what I think, what I have come to understand this means and why this is the pivot point of history. And it's this, and some of you have seen this before, but I think it's a very clear presentation of what's going on is that God made the world. God made the universe. God made you. He had a design, and his design was perfect, but something happened, and that something that happened was I sinned, and you sinned, and everyone sinned, and that sin took us out of God's design, and it took us into a place of brokenness. Even so, I heard this morning on the news there were some bombings in Egypt at Christian churches, and there's brokenness in the world, and things are broken. There were chemical weapon attacks this week. On innocent civilians. The world is broken. None of us can deny that. But what do we do about that brokenness? And we have all these things that we do to try to get out of brokenness. We try to do good works. We try to pick a good religion. We try to just have fun and enjoy our lives. Or we try to think about it and think our way out of this. But brokenness is like gravity. And it pulls us back. And so we're stuck in this brokenness. And that's the bad news. We're separated from God. We're separated from God's design because of our sin. And we're caught in a broken world. But God didn't leave us here. And that's where Jesus Christ comes into the picture. God sends Jesus Christ back into our world. What did he do? He comes to earth as a man, as God's own son. He lives a sinless life. At the end of his sinless life, what happens as we're celebrating this time of year? 
He's crucified on a cross. He dies in our place to take the penalty that's due to us for our sin. And then here comes that key pivotal point as he's raised from the dead. He comes back to life. And by coming back to life, he's offering to you and to me a free gift. A free gift where we can get right. We can get back to God's design. We can spend eternity with Him in heaven. That's what He tells us. And so the opportunity that we have because of Jesus Christ, because of His resurrection from the dead, we get to turn and believe if we want. Everyone has a choice. We can choose or choose otherwise. We can turn and believe which gives us the opportunity to recover and pursue God's design in this life. And that's what the resurrection means for us. And when we answer these objections, it helps us to understand this is a historical event and I need to take stock of it. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the, the clarity and the truth of your scripture. God, we think about the the historical events of the resurrection of Christ. And God, I thank you that that there is even an encouragement that you have for us to, to search these things out. To raise objections. And then go find the answers and to answer them. And yet, God, at the end of it, we recognize that what's most important is that we need to do something. We have to come to grips with the resurrection of Jesus. We have to ask and answer the question, did he rise from the dead and what does that mean for me? And Lord, I think about in my own life, the lives of many people here, What that means is placing our faith and our trust in you and making you the Lord of our life. Not in a religious way where we're going to be trying to do good works or good deeds to try to get closer to you, but to receive the free gift of salvation. And Lord, I believe there may even be people here today who've never done that. And this could be the chance of coming to grips with the resurrection of Jesus. And There's this prayer on the screen. If you've never prayed a prayer and asked God to come into your life, if you've never placed your faith in Him, you've never made Him your Lord and your Savior, if you've never received that free gift of salvation that's offered because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, This prayer is very simple. You would just say something like, God, I changed my mind about Jesus and I recognize Him as your Son. I changed my mind about myself. I cannot get to heaven on my own. I cannot get out of the brokenness on my own accord. I know that I'm a sinner and I need your forgiveness. I believe that you did indeed die on that cross for my sins and that you did indeed rise from the grave. And so I now, right now, invite you to come into my heart and my life as my Lord and Savior.
In Jesus' name. Lord, we thank you that you offered such, such a simple way for each one of us individually, personally, to get right with you. On this Palm Sunday, we thank you for the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and your love that's demonstrated for us in that. Amen.